Hello and welcome back to episode 5 of page 94, the Private Eye podcast. My name's Andrew Hunter-Murray and today we are having a bumper election special mammoth monster edition of page 94 to help us all cope with the fact that we won't know who is in charge for weeks after the election. We will be talking to privatised medical correspondent Dr Phil Hammond about the pledges made on the NHS and how likely they are to come true. Spoiler alert, not very. We'll also be talking to Adam McQueen about the recent arrests of journalists over conspiracy to pay public officials. But before all that, it's time for an election feature on the Prime Ministerial Parody. This is currently, of course, the Coalition Academy, but previous years have seen Letters to Dear Bill, The Secret Diary of John Major, and, of course, the St Albion Parish News. Here's Ian with a secret sneak peek of his plans for the next one. Hello, Ian. Hello. Prime Ministerial Parodies. Yes. Are you going to ask me what ideas have I got? I am, yes. Uh, The trouble is, I haven't got any. Um, (laughs) But I'm not particularly worried because I never normally do. All the best ideas for those sort of prime minister slots tend to come up in that sort of couple of weeks after the election when you suddenly have to face the reality that it is Tony Blair or it is Cameron and Clegg. And that's slightly different from guessing in advance. Okay, so last time it changed i mean there was a bit of horse trading this time there might be who knows we might have months of horse trading might turn into belgium (laughs) in which case or israel yeah Uh, i guess you have a caretaker school department caretaker coag yes at least the 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 school parallel means you could um essentially have no one running the school for quite a long (laughs) period any sort of coalition makes it more difficult to present those sort of single features the days of dear bill with mrs thatcher that was a very single focus we got away with it with coac partly because we just saw this picture of the two of them in the rose garden and everyone said oh they look like you know they've just got married in a civil partnership and that was the first thought but actually they just looked to me like they were the headmaster and the deputy head giving a very warm welcome to the new parents and it was that simple really yeah. that idea took off and this, i suppose the school thing is a big feature with cameron because everyone talks about the eaton thing so therefore that might have sort of fed into it or it percolates through that yes there was um not only the obsession with his own schooling but also gove was absolutely banging on about academies at this point and then we got free schools and the whole idea of education was suddenly in the air yeah. The also, I mean, the good thing about doing a school is everyone's been to school, um, <laughs> so you know what the jokes are. We found that uh, doing Blair, we had a parish newsletter, which was fine, but actually a lot of people have no idea <laughs> what a parish newsletter looks like, and a lot of people hadn't been to church, and well, so some of those jokes were lost. Well, I fall into both of those categories, not a regular churchgoer and also um, not a member of a parish. So, but I can't imagine it, how I hired you. <laughs> But it didn't. It felt right for Blair, and I was actually I looked at the issue from 1997, just after the election, and there is the parish news, and there's also Blair Zone, which was this. It's a ba- it's a boy band where Tony Blair is the lead singer and the guitarist and all of this stuff, and it's got things like um, Tony likes babes, flares, and an independent Bank of England, and you know a little Tony fact file. Did that run for a while, sort of concurrently? To see, were you seeing which one felt right or yes. Blair was known for having been in a band and also for, for desperately wanting to be modern. And it was called <laughs> Britannia and he just wanted to be at the centre of it all. And I thought a sort of fanzine yeah. might make it. But in the end, what swung it was literally him carrying that guitar into Downing Street. <laughs> and 
realising, oh, it was the trendy curate had arrived and he was about to sing Kumbaya and tell everyone. And actually, the joke just got better because Tony not only was sort of very sanctimonious, but he developed a sort of messiah complex. So by the end of it, he wasn't just the vicar, he was God. And he's popped up as God since then, hasn't he? Yes, and he does turn up now. Yeah, um, what is it, the, is it D-A-F-T? Yes. Drawing the, all faiths together. Yes, it. it's a huge religious foundation, <laughs> which also makes a great deal of money. So some of the parodies get a longer life. Yeah, but jo- John Major still crops up. We still have the secret diary every so often of John Major. Yes, that's marvellous, and I should think most people have no idea what the original <laughs> parody was of. Or who John Major is now. <laughs> yes, well, I think he reminds us sufficiently often that he was the last man who actually won a... Uh, straightforward victory for the Tories. Yeah. But then, I mean, the, all the rage was this wonderfully funny book by Sue Townsend, The Secret Diary of Adrian Mole. And we were all in the office and we more or less simultaneously came to the conclusion that morning after the first speech, oh my God, Adrian Mole is now the Prime Minister. Yeah. It was the monotonous delivery, but also his obsession with the very, very dull things in life um, that helped the joke go on. Like the Cones hotline. The Cones hotline <laughs> and... A sort of vulnerability. He was sort of furious with his backbenchers all the time, the, the people who he called the bastards, and uh, when he was caught off, off mic. But um, he was sort of... He was always beleaguered, and I think it was that sense of being both dull and paranoid which which helped that joke. You have to kind of get the whole man, don't you? Because <laughs> now everyone thinks of Tony Blair as being the vicar from St Albion. It's, it, it's stuck, and it, it you know spreads out beyond the pages of the mag into people's perception of them yes and and you know if you've got it right yeah i remember paxman was once interviewing blair and blair had literally gone to a school and stood in front of a stained glass window and paxman (laughs) said well you you just are the vicar of st albion's aren't you the guardian ran an editorial um describing uh gordon brown as the supreme leader and said it was impossible to guess which was the parody and which was his actual speeches but i have to say i mean that was an idea from a reader Oh, really? Okay. I literally got a letter, and he didn't want to be credited, and, you know, very rare. He didn't even want to be paid. He didn't want anything. He just said, I've had this idea that your next Prime Minister feature should be from the Supreme Leader, and it should be a sort of Stalinist sheet about how gloriously the workforce has done and how brilliantly the five-year plan is going to work. And, I mean, it was a brilliant idea, so which we just took. Yeah. <laughs> you really need a literary parody. You need something that works as a format, yeah. which is why diaries and letters and newsletters are so good. And, I mean, the the most successful one of all was Dear Bill, which was a letter from the spouse. Right, OK. Um, and that was Richard Ingram's and John Wells, and they'd done Mrs Wilson's diary, which, again, was the diary of the spouse. So the, the idea that people using their spouses are something new is not at all okay. true. They were always there. <laughs> so, no, I'm very open. Um, I just have no idea at the moment what the format will be. Schools are good. Institutions are good. Our prison's obviously good. Uh, those sorts of formats are, are funny. Have you got a Boris Johnson one up your sleeve come the day? I think you would just do Boris straight. There is absolutely <laughs> no point. Uh, we, we have run a, uh, a letter from the mayor. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. But half the time, I mean, the difference between that and his column in the Telegraph is, is just the typeface, really. <laughs> Which ones would you say have not worked as well? In the 70s, they did Ted Heath as the very, very dull chairman of a company called Heathco, which sort of made paperclips or something, because Heath was obsessed by the 
mechanics of government and by the levers and by the small things rather than right. they thought um, by the vision. And it was a, it was a funny sort of it was a bit like the office really. It was sort of just about how dull corporate life was with Heath as the sending out a lot of pompous memos all the time about um, restructuring. Yeah. Uh, but oddly enough, um, that never really took off. Yeah. Is this just you blaming the previous administration? Oh, always. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to accept all their successes <laughs> and blame all their failures, which is a prime ministerial parody of its own. Yes. Ian has up there. Now, in recent weeks, there have been lots of stories in the papers, most notably in The Sun, about journalists being tried and, for the most part, those trials collapsing. The trials were, in the main, for conspiracy to pay public officials for information, and the story has been covered a great deal in Private Eye, as not all is as it seems. Here is Adam McQueen, one of Private Eye's hacks, telling us exactly what was going on. Okay, so why don't we start by talking about the payment of public officials. You've been covering this for a long time, because you were covering the phone hacking, you went to the entire phone hacking trial at the Old Bailey? Uh, most of it, yeah. I did skip some of the more tedious days that were to do with triangulation of phone masts and reading out <laughs> records from the man- managing editor's office at great length. But, but, you uh, got but most about, of it there, yeah. yeah. No, it was about was it, what was it six, seven, eight months in the end. It was it was a significant mm. chunk of the year I spent sitting down in the old bailey. Yeah, yeah. It was very quiet in the office. It was lovely. It was, it was really <laughs> you good. got rid of me. Yeah, 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 yeah. Very yeah. relaxing. Um, so you you covered that, but this obviously is not part of that. That was Operation Wheating. No, much as some people would like to confuse the two. This is yet another police operation. There are so many police operations now. The one that has just pretty much come to an end, as the CPS have decided not to press any more prosecutions, is Elverdon, as opposed to Wheating, which was the original investigation into phone hacking at the News of the World. Mm. There's also a secondary investigation into phone hacking at the News of the World on the Features Desk, uh, called Operation Pine Tree. And then, of course, there's uh, that one into the mirror, which is Operation Golden. Where do they get these names from? Apparently they're all pulled off a police computer. I hoped they'd be like Hurricanes, which are named <laughs> um, Hurricanes and Guide Dog Puppy Litters, are named alphabetically. Is that so? Yeah, that's a fascinating fact you didn't think you'd get on the Pro Valley podcast. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. so, um, so the thing that's in, been in the papers recently a lot has not been the phone hacking. That's all to one side for the moment. Yep. What we're dealing with now is the payments to officials, public officials. Nearly. What we've been dealing with recently and what's been in the papers is the conspiracy to pay public officials. So an awful lot of public officials, uh, civil servants, prison officers, police officers, press officers from the MOD, were already done uh, a long while back with not not an enormous fanfare in the press for being corrupted as public officials and taking payments from uh, from newspapers. The the charges which juries failed to make stick on various journalists, mostly from the Sun, was a conspiracy. So basically it's the other half of it. It's it's the giving the payments. And this was due to essentially a point of law that they had to prove that serious harm harm had been done to the public interest uh, by their actions. Effectively, this is what it all comes down to, is that the CPS and the police needed to establish exactly whether this was a prosecutable offence or not. Two of the charges in the original phone hacking trial, those glory days of Andy Coulson and Rebecca Brooks standing side by side in the dock, were to do with payments to public officials. And they were the right. two that the jury failed to reach a verdict on. Which kind of left the CPS in a very difficult situation because they had an awful lot of cases backing up behind them, which were for for the same offence and legally kind of nothing to go on. Which is why they were so keen to to get somewhere with this. But jury after jury proves to be very unobliging with this and 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 refused to say that a serious enough crime had been committed. So, what kind of stories were these that we're talking about that came from public officials? 
they range from a lot of things. Well, I'll give you one example which I do know all about, which is um, a police officer who phoned the Sun because she felt that resources were being directed away from counter-terrorism operations. She worked in the counter-terrorism unit onto things that she felt were more frivolous and not so necessary to be investigated. Now, even more confusingly, <laughs> the specific thing she thought was frivolous and shouldn't be investigated was phone hacking at the News of the World. But right. nevertheless, <laughs> by anyone's measures as a journalist, that was a, that was a matter of public interest if, 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 if resources were being taken away from counter-terrorism. Now, she... Uh, she, she didn't ask for payment. She wasn't given any payment. Right. But because of the paperwork which was recorded by the journalists involved in that story, I mentioned police officer wants to sell story. Right. This was enough to end up with her being convicted and she lost her job as a police officer and is now working in a shoe repair shop. She lost a large chunk of her pension as well. So essentially her career is ruined. Now, because the big question with this is how did, the, how did anyone ever find out that she was talking to yeah. the newspapers at all? And that is with the bit of obfuscation, really, in all of the recent coverage of it, um, which is that she was grasped up by News International. Because at the point where everything was falling apart there back in 2011 and the news of the world was being closed down in enormous panic, yeah. what they started to do was to hand over enormous tranches of information, almost as sort of flack, being thrown up just to distract from the, the main problems then, which were the height in the organisation at management level to which uh, knowledge of phone hacking went, which yeah. we now know all the way, all the way to, uh, to Andy Coulson as editor. So all of these much more junior journalists found themselves being grasped up, but more to the point, their sources for various stories found themselves being grasped up as well. Now, this is one of the absolute sacrosanct things. We, we journalists have very, very little in the way of honour, but one of the things we really <laughs> do hold close is that you never, ever, ever betray your sources Um, and that goes for private eyes as much as it goes for any of the tabloids if someone gives you a story and they are effectively a whistleblower they're risking their jobs by doing so you have to absolutely keep their identity secret Mm. forever and that was just ridden over roughshod by the Management and Standards Committee that was set up by News of the World, read by uh, two executives called Will Lewis and Simon Greenberg, who not only handed over enormous amounts of information from the archived records, but actually invited the police in to work with them, alongside them, at Wapping. They had their own right. desks there. <laughs> And this extraordinary level of cooperation went on for for months and months and months until the point when it became apparent that it actually wasn't doing the job and the police were still considering the prospect of a corporate charge against News International on phone hacking, at which point suddenly it dried up and they weren't so keen on having the police around the place or cooperating with them anymore. So but of course, by that point, it was far too late because all of the all of the information had gone to the police, and uh, all of their staff, and more to the point, all of the sources had been shafted. So th- there are a lot of journalists who are still there today who would have been involved in this or chucked to it rather by the management. Well, there are a lot of them now who've, who've gone through this, uh, as they've been talking about, since the trials ended. Um, months, if not years, of, of trauma and, and legal action and, and not being able to do their jobs, uh, who are now sort of considering whether or not to go back to this organisation that yeah. effectively sold them down the river. Now, to be fair to News International, they were then obliged to sort of cover these people's legal costs. And, uh, yeah, but they wouldn't have had any legal costs. Had they not, <laughs> had they not shafted their own staff in the first place. It was, it was the most extraordinary set of circumstances, it really was. That hasn't really been covered in the sun as much, has it? Oddly enough, they haven't <laughs> been so keen to talk about that. They've been very talking about it very vocally off the record. I mean, listeners might remember a, a couple of years ago, we had a story about a meeting in which uh, Rupert Murdoch addressed a lot of these journalists yeah. when they were on bail uh, for these offences and, 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 and facing trial at that point, you know, looking at prison sentences. No one knew that these trials were all eventually going to fall through. Yeah. 
and they were very, very cross about it indeed. Readers might also remember the uh, the story then being covered by Channel Four News as an exclusive a couple of weeks later, which was uh, which was particularly good fun. <laughs> but, um, the the level long of... memories at private eye. Oh yes, indeed. <laughs> the, um, the the level of fury at the Sun and elsewhere in News International at the actions of their management was extraordinary. And at one point, Will Lewis, the uh, the executive in charge of the Management and Standards Committee, was actually warned not to drink in the local pub in Wapping, where he he, he liked to uh, to drown his sorrows after a hard day at work because he, he, they couldn't guarantee his safety from, from 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 the staff there. That was the sort of level of anger that things were at for a while. He's now, of course, been uh, as 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 always happens with the executives who are involved in this kind of thing, uh, safely promoted and taken off to New York out of the reach of any angry hacks. What happens when things happen in New York? Where do you get promoted to from there? Uh, I think sort of Ukraine, Ulaanbaatar, <laughs> places like that. Well, no, normally the thing with Murdoch executives is that they get bumped up into complete non-jobs. So um, oh, right. David Yelland, the uh, the old Sun editor, yeah. who was given given a, given a job somewhere in the business, which basically, as far as I could tell, consisted of him kind of having a broom cupboard converted and a desk put in it, and him just sort of sitting there with a phone that wasn't attached to anything <laughs> for a while until he got the message. But that that tends to be the way. Yeah. Um, so. Just to get this totally crystal clear, the people who were handing over information, some of them who were, were just genuinely thought there was a public interest in it and were mm. in these positions like you know, press officers of the MOD or mm. people in the police, lots of those people have been convicted. Lots of them were convicted. It, it, it's those weird. journalists who um, were convicted in mm. a couple of cases, the Court of Appeal then ruled that the jury had been misdirected in the case. So one of those decisions was uh, overturned and the CPS then decided not to retry the other case. Well, so effectively, uh, say, for, say for three cases that are now ongoing, the whole thing is over. It is an extraordinary one. With the eye, it's been on, because obviously we've done an awful lot of coverage of, uh, of phone hacking, but we tended to sort of kind of steer clear of, of, of this whole area, because as a journalist, I just think once you start getting into relations between journalists and their sources, it's just not an area that the police should be in, involved in at all. It's it, it very, very dubious. Um, yeah. As I say, that is this absolute sacrosanct thing, because yeah. this is something that um, even as scumbaggy as, journal- as all us journalists are, <laughs> we really do hold, hold very, uh, very dear. But this is not the end, is it, for all of the fallout from, for example, phone hacking, because there's a little more of that coming up? No, there's still, as we saw um, a couple of weeks ago, Piers Morgan visited a police station for the second time to talk about how high knowledge at the Mirror titles went of what we now know to be fairly widespread phone hacking Mm. across three of their titles. That was, as you can imagine, received in the usual sober manner at Private Eye when when we heard that news. Yeah. And the News of the World phone hacking story is not entirely over, although we have had uh, an awful lot of convictions in that, an awful lot of people pleading guilty ahead of uh, going into court. This June we'll see a further trial of that, which is Neil Wallace, who was Andy Coulson's deputy for a lot of his time at mm. the News of the World. So I may be heading back down to the um, to the Old Bailey for another stretch for that one. Good, finally, a bit of peace and quiet at last. <laughs> <laughs> Adam McQueen. Now, the NHS has been one of the key battlegrounds of the election. However, beyond all the pledges of vast amounts of extra money or seeing a GP whenever you like, there are serious problems which none of the main parties has owned up to, let alone thought about addressing. So we thought we'd ask an expert, namely privatised medical correspondent MD, a.k.a. Dr Phil Hammond. Here he is. Phil Hammond is a doctor and a journalist and a broadcaster and comedian who has been in the NHS and investigating it and writing about it for about 30 years now. He is also Private Eye's medicine correspondent, writing under the pseudonym MD, possibly the least secret pseudonym that we have. That isn't anymore, is it? It's yeah. all out now. <laughs> <laughs> when you started linking to your website, I think that was the giveaway that possibly it was you well, behind I, the curtain. The real giveaway, actually, was when I was summoned to give evidence at the Bristol Heart Baby Inquiry. So I met Ian 
Hislop in the toilet at a BBC Light Entertainment Christmas party. Uh, and I was a sort of a young doctor in a double act called Struck Off and Die with a, a comedy actor. He was a junior doctor called Tony Gardner. And we got a series on the BBC and got invited to the Christmas party. And, and, and Ian was there. Yeah. And I followed Ian into the toilet. And I said, can I have a column in <laughs> private eye? And he said, do you mind not standing so close to me? Um, but he liked the idea of junior doctors dishing the dirt on their own profession. And we were living in Bristol at the time. And Tony was working in the emergency department of the Bristol Royal Infirmary. And he said, there's an anaesthetist here you really need to meet because he's telling me that far more babies are dying after heart surgery in their unit than anything else. And it was a real shift for me because I moved from the idea of protecting doctors isn't awful what we do to junior doctors to suddenly thinking about, hang on, the consequences are if the health service goes wrong, yeah. people die. And the Bristol Heart Scandal, which we broke in private eye in 1992, we published audit to say that Bristol was far worse than any other unit and you'd be advised to go elsewhere. Uh, it took seven years for them to have a public inquiry, but it then became the largest public inquiry in British history then. Uh, and I was summoned to give evidence as private eyes MD. <laughs> so there was no hiding this. I think everybody knows. But to be fair, I mean, I didn't at the beginning because Ian advised me that other professionals who'd written under pseudonyms had really suffered right. uh, when they'd exposed themselves as who they were. Uh, but I thought, actually, I believe in transparency. So yeah. I'd, and I think you should be accountable for what you write. So people know that it's me. And interestingly, I've never been sued. We've got a few things wrong that I've apologised for. Never yet. But never yet. Let's say never, never yet, say never. But the saddest thing is in, you know, 20 odd years, 25 years nearly of breaking stories, a lot of them are about whistleblowers. All their stories have stacked up, but I've never been able to get a whistleblower back their job. So that's right. the sadness for me. You expose this, but actually the doctor side of me actually wants to change things for the better. And journalists are good at exposing stuff, but does it actually improve the system? Well, 23 years on from Bristol, we still haven't safely reorganised child heart surgery in this country. So was that worth it? I don't know. And the whistleblowers are exactly the people we need in the NHS to speak the truth to power and to stand up to the politicians and the managers. And they're nearly always the ones who lose their jobs. So that really angers me and drives me to keep doing it until we start being nice to whistleblowers and, and to patients and carers who complain. There are a lot of pledges about whistleblowers in various manifestos, um, the electoral manifestos which have just been published. Do you set much store by them, or do you think that there really isn't well, much to it? I th I'm on record for absolutely hating the Health and Social Care Act and the outsourcing of the NHS, the private sector, so people know that. But I would say in Jeremy Hunt's defence that he does seem to have taken patient safety a bit more seriously, and he is genuine when he talks about whistleblowers, and he did get Robert Francis in to do an inquiry on it. I mean, whether it makes any difference, I don't know. But the fact that we've now acknowledged publicly that we've caused huge suffering to these whistleblowers and we've treated them appalling is a good thing. Yeah. They need some sort of restitution. But above all, they need their jobs back. You know, when you lose your job, often you lose sort of all meaning and purpose. And it does your head in. You lose your marriage, you lose your house, you lose your income, you lose your pension. But you lose the thing that mattered most to you. So I give them a little bit of credit for doing it. Okay. Let's be fair to the politicians. And actually, at the eye lunches, I meet politicians and they're not that bad, to be honest. You don't always have to agree with them, but actually, yeah. I, I think we're pretty tough on it. If we come too cynical, then the whole thing collapses, and what's the point of anything? So right, well, this really I, will get you I'll sued or fired. Five, <laughs> I'll give him five out of ten for putting it on the agenda, but I'd be very surprised in the current climate with no real money in the NHS whether we really do seriously take whistleblowing concerns or whether we keep hiding them under the carpet because they're politically embarrassing. So, no real money in the NHS. Uh, a lot of promises, eight billion more, I think, from both the Tories and the yeah. Lib Dems. Yeah, but that's a fascinating promise because they're fighting over eight billion, and Labour is saying that's fantasy money. Well, eight billion over five years works out at under one and a half percent a year. So if we look at the growth in terms of the NHS, which we need because people get older every year. When the NHS was founded, half of people died before the age of 65. Now one in three of us live to 100. And we keep living longer year on year. So the NHS needs growth in its funding because people are living longer. Unless we introduce mass involuntary euthanasia, 
otherwise known as living in Scotland, uh, it's, <laughs> it's, you know, we're going to keep having to put all this extra money in. Uh, the money they're pledging, £8 billion over five years, 1.5%, is not a huge amount. We've had five years of 0.9%, and prior to that, the average growth was about 4%. So we will have had pretty much five years of really drying up of NHS funding. And if they can't even manage £8 billion in five years, we really are stuffed. Uh, and I think probably we need more. But to do that, you need honest politicians to say, look, you know, if you want to care for the elderly and do cutting-edge heart surgery on young babies, it's going to cost this much. Do you want to pay more tax? I think income tax is by far the fairest way of doing it. Right. But the danger is is that people will give up. If waiting lists get long again, they'll just go, right, I'm just going to get my own private insurance to run alongside that, which, of course, they can do already. But it, it means that the, the beauty of the NHS, which is treating people according to their needs, not their ability to pay, may fall to pieces a bit. And that's been the case, of course, over the last five years with lots of outsourcing that's been happening in the NHS itself. Yeah, I remember having a conversation with Ian Hislop about this, and Ian had a great line, which <laughs> I agree with, actually. He said, in all my time working at Private Eye, I've never really f- understood outsourcing. And he says, has outsourcing ever been the answer to anything? And in a company, you might outsource the water filter or something, but you know, if, if the NHS was a business, and I don't really like talking about it as a business, but you wouldn't outsource your core business. They've just given £250 million to Virgin to do care of the elderly in Stafford. Now, I appreciate that care of the elderly in Stafford is a politically contentious issue, but giving it to a company that does, I don't know, rail fares and aeroplanes and unsuccessful cola and space travel, uh, are they the people to do it? It's really complex care of the elderly. It's the hardest thing. It's people living to 100 with six different conditions on 18 tablets. They're really frail, and the reason we had the Mid-Stafford scandal is that we didn't have enough qualified expert nurses who understood how to look after care for frail elderly patients. Is outsourcing it to a company who eventually has to make a profit for shareholders going to work? Well, I'd be very surprised if there's a 5% profit in caring for the frail elderly on that scale without cherry-picking the easier cases and leaving the NHS to pick up the hard cases. So we shall see. Presumably it's just a matter, in part at least, of getting it off the balance sheet, as with PFI for hospitals. Yeah, yeah, and it's lovely. When politicians say they love the NHS, they generally mean they love it off the balance sheets. And we know PFI was a disaster, and the wonderful Paul Foote was straight onto that. Alison Pollock, who's a wonderful academic, was straight onto that. As far back as 1990, what's it, when it first came in, I was doing gags about PFI stands for paying for it indefinitely. And anyone with a you know grade C GCSE maths could see that the the mortgage didn't stack up. It was like buying a really expensive hospital on a credit card. And I've just done something with the BBC about the debts, and it's not uncommon for you to pay back 12 times the build cost. 12 times. Now, I know there's a bit of maintenance and things thrown in, but it is absolutely staggeringly bad. Yeah. And if you speak to the people and the hedge fund owners who put those deals together, they couldn't believe it at the time. They're now coming out of the woodwork and saying, you know, our buttocks are in butter. We couldn't believe what a good deal we had out of this. And it's staggering, and maybe it's because... Labour and the Department of Health and NHS managers didn't have the expertise to stand up for the private sector. You can't blame them for profiteering because that's what they do. But it's deeply depressing and it's caused a huge problem. So we've shown PFI didn't really work. Uh, Circle couldn't make a profit out of Hinchinbrook and have had to pull out. And yet we still persist in outsourcing huge chunks. They're now planning to put £1.2 billion worth of cancer care into the private sector. Incredibly risky because healthcare relies on complex integration and networks and collaboration. And you rarely get that when you fragment into different service providers with different ethoses, profit motives, computer systems. We need integration and and collaboration. 
But also it seems as though neither the Conservatives nor Labour can really have a go at each other about PFI. Because no. it was introduced under the Conservatives, massively ramped up under Labour, and now yeah. has been continued under the Conservatives with strains of Lib Dem for the last five years. It is, and I think what's interesting also is the role of Simon Stevens, who's now Chief Executive of the NHS. I first met him when he was Frank Dobson's advisor, and we were lobbying for a public inquiry into Bristol. And he seemed to be fairly to the left then. And then he became Melbourne's advisor and Tony Blair's advisor. And I think he coined the phrase, the NHS needs the constructive discomfort of competition. So he was probably the, behind the idea that we need more competition, whereas I've always argued we need more collaboration plus transparency. I think that if you publish people's outcomes, then you get competition based on quality rather than on money and corporate motives. But he's, he's the thread all the way through. So he's gone through... He left uh, Tony Blair's cabinet and went to work for United Health, which is a big American private company, which may well stand to, to gain from the contracts being handed out in the NHS now. Of course, that would all be completely impartial. Um, <laughs> so I think, you know, that you're right. Labour and uh, the Conservatives and the NHS management have bought into the idea of corporatising the NHS and probably moving it down a path of mixed state funding and mixed private insurance funding, which most other countries have. But if you look at the Commonwealth report on, in 2014... Uh, it still brought the NHS out as the top-performing health service in the world. That's an American report, and there are others that say it, you know, it's not quite so good on its cancer outcomes, but actually in terms of value for money that it puts in and fairness and safety, it was top of the pile. This is what I read. Uh, in fact, I read this in your in book. book. Yes. Uh, would that you be say... Staying Alive, How to Get the Best from the NHS? Yes, it would. <laughs> the bestseller already on another print run. We have now entered the plug phase of the yeah. podcast. But no. Come out. I'm so sorry. I, really, I don't know what came over me. I'm really sorry about it. Uh, no, but I was, I, was reading, I was reading this. Yes, as you say, we have a fantastic healthcare system by a lot of standards. Is we that do. Is that fair to say? Uh, well, yes, but I mean, I firmly believe in the NHS, but I firmly believe the NHS could be a lot better. And my argument is that slightly British blind trust and authority figures thing has to go. Um, and we don't actually want top-down change in the NHS. We want a bottom-up revolution. I call it my B-Day revolution because it's just a terrible scatological humour. But what will that look like? Well, if you look at the science of it, 70% of what we can do to prevent illness from happening um, and to control illness once it does happen is down to human behaviour, lifestyle and life circumstances. 30% is down to what healthcare can do for you. Now, granted, some people have appalling life circumstances. Your life expectancy is 15 years less if you're poor compared to if you're rich. There's a 20-year gap in healthy living between the rich and the poor. So the rich have 20 years better healthy life than the poor who are often very dependent on the NHS for long periods. However... Whatever the level of your bar to start with, I do think a lot of it, you know, you can improve your own personal health. And it's about not handing over all responsibility to experts, but understanding that certain lifestyle things of which walking uh, is probably the most useful. Getting a dog for 90 percent of symptoms, you're better off with a dog than a doctor. Really? Yeah. <laughs> They're wonderful. You hug a dog, it reduces your blood pressure. You, it reduces your cholesterol biting your food it looks at you until you take it out for a walk i mean there are all sorts of lots of reasons that compassion and love and family and community and friendship actually have a more impact on your health than taking 15 tablets a day yeah i, I think that's yeah it's an interesting thing and i think they call they're the terrible things they just call things well-being which just does people and wellness and it does people's heads in but actually it's all about living a life of passion and purpose in a community and uh, feeling loved yeah. I think inequalities in health is inequality in love. Right? It's very hard for the NHS to do that because we've yeah. had so traditionally had the view of medicine as mm. something's wrong with you, 
Mm. When something goes really wrong, yeah. make it better, as opposed to yes. live a good life and yeah. it won't go wrong yeah. in the first place. Yeah, and the reason, and that we're now we've stretched the uh, the elastic band beyond its safe limits. So it's interesting now. There was a great study by the Health Foundation that found that doctors and nurses are often more stressed than their patients during consultations. Really, and stressed about making the wrong diagnosis, missing a target, upsetting a manager. It's quite likely now that you will be mentally healthier than your doctor or nurse who's treating you, and that's ridiculous. Jesus. The actual health of yeah. the NHS workforce. One of the stories in my book is about David Nicholson, who I was incredibly rude about in private eye because I felt he should have. We should say who he was as well. David Nicholson was the previous chief executive of the NHS under several administrations. And to be fair, he oversaw it during that Commonwealth Fund survey, and so they said it was good and functioning on certain parameters. But he completely missed the mid-staff scandal. I don't think he was particularly good on NHS whistleblowers. I think there was a slightly bullying enforcement culture um, under him. But he got the job done, and he kept a grip on the finances, so he deserves some credit. But what was interesting is that during his tenure as chief executive, he got bigger and bigger and bigger. He went to corporate lunches. He started using elasticated waist trousers, ended up with a 48-inch waist or whatever, and developed, without realising it, type 2 diabetes, which take, diabetes takes about 9 or 10% of the NHS budget, so it's one of the biggest preventable causes uh, of... Wow. Of, uh, well, long-term disability, and he just this crept up on him while he was head of the NHS. So he's in charge of 1.3 million people in the service that's struggling to cope with diabetes. And actually, it shows that we're human. You know, there are lots of doctors who are alcoholic and drug addicted. I don't blame him for that, but it's really interesting that as soon as he gave up his job, uh, he got a grip on his health, and he's now down to a normal weight and not on any tablets and has controlled his diabetes. And that's one of the stories I follow in my book, is often if you're in a very stressful situation you're a workaholic or you've got all sorts of other life stresses, it's really hard to get your health right. Yeah. We tend to put money in sex before health, but actually if you're paying top trumps, health should probably win because it all collapses like a souffle when you have your heart attack or your stroke. I read the David Nicholson story. I couldn't yeah. believe that, uh, I think you said that diabetes leads to, is it 6,000 amputations a year, 80% of which are avoidable? Yes, and there's, really, there's also something really scary called the Atlas of Variation in the NHS, which shows your chance of having an amputation varies threefold depending on where you live in the country. Oh, wow. And that's really okay. scary. So variation yeah. in the NHS really freaks out politicians. And it will probably freak out patients if they knew more about it. Yeah, I, mean, I, pr- I presume it's almost all with re- poverty indicators and things Partly, like that. Partly. I mean, so. part of it, like all these things, is like, say, why don't we pick up cancer? Part of it is patients coming forward and realising they've got a red flag symptom for cancer or diabetes. Part of it is GPs not being so stressed as to be able to pick it up. And then part of it is access to specialist services and investigations and treatments. So all those three things tends to vary quite enormously from region to region. Yeah. Uh, and there's something called the inverse care law, which basically says that the people who are most in need of health services are least likely to access that. Right. Well, that's cheering, isn't it? It is cheering, <laughs> but on a brighter note. Get yourself a dog. I also wanted to ask about GPs. You work as a GP. and I th- Well, I did. I worked for a GP as a GP for 20 years, and I now work in a specialist unit in hospital for young people with chronic fatigue syndrome. Okay. But I was speaking to GPs yesterday in Stroud, And we had to laugh. There was someone almost crying with laughter at this ridiculous political pledge that everyone over 75 will be able to see a GP on the same day. They're sort of out-trumping each other. Next day they'll say everybody over 75 will have their own live-in GP. Uh, And they're making these nonsense pledges, which we know they're not going to be able to fulfil. We should say this is a conservative pledge. That one's a conservative (laughs) pledge, but Labour have said everybody's going to have a midwife with them in the room right throughout all their labour. Well, suddenly they're going to magic up 3,000 midwives from somewhere. I mean, they're both top-trumping themselves as slightly ridiculous pledges which would be good if we put the money in actually because we're british we've been slightly tight with our money over the nhs over its 60 odd years and that's the re- one of the reasons it's in a bit of trouble 
Uh, and actually, if we wanted that, A, we'd have to train them, but B, we'd have to put significantly more money in than we're doing at the moment. The current shortage of GPs, there's a large number who are thinking about retirement in the next five years. Yeah, there are lots of complex reasons for that. The, the 50-something yeah. GPs, because of what George Osborne has done with his allowable pension pots, because the NHS pension is pretty generous, a lot of them have a pot that's full up, and they're going to get taxed fairly heavily on their extra contributions. Now, to be honest, GPs aren't quite as obsessed with money as the Daily Mail would have you think, but that might be an incentive for people to say, right, I've had enough, or I'm not going to be full-time, I'm just going to go part-time. I think there's a real risk we're going to lose some of the senior mid-50s GPs. And the younger ones coming through don't want to work full-time. Often, you know, often they go to Australia for a bit. Increasingly, they're going to Australia and staying there. So we're training a lot of people, but we've got to do an awful lot to retain them. Uh, and people know, you know that 30% of GP training places throughout the country are vacant. You can't fool the people. You can go and make little videos about how wonderful it is being a GP, but people listen to the front line, and it's incredibly stressful because that's where it all ends up at the moment. Yeah, Everyone goes to their GP, and my wife is a GP, and she's wonderful. She's really kind, but she's only, she does two days a week, sometimes three, and she's absolutely exhausted at the end of the day. It is really, really tough to do that job well. And we're being promised, I think, seven-day-a-week GPs at the moment. Well, seven-day-a-week NHS, which, again, yeah. it makes sense because you're more, more likely at the moment to die if you have your so you conveniently have your sickness at a Friday evening or over the weekend. Or, uh, so we should be able to have a seven-day NHS. But, again, that's huge resource implications, which on 1.5% increase in growth in the budget isn't going to happen. So it's good, but I would be amazed if that happens. And, in fact, they promised it previously. They promised us we'll all have our own electronic records on a little disc to carry around with us. They promised that about five or ten years ago. It still hasn't happened. I will eat my feet. <laughs> there's a pledge. I will eat my feet. If we have a seven-day NHS and everyone over 75 can see a GP on the same day during the next parliament, I will eat my feet. And you can record that. <laughs> the, the over 75 thing is interesting as well because obviously the vast majority of people who visit their GP or end up in an NHS hospital are over 75 or yeah, 80 I think that's what people don't, don't always remember is that the NHS has become a care of the older person service um, the, you know, the average age of people in hospital is now over 80 and in general practice it's uh, over 75 uh, having said that, there are a lot of people in their 80s living great lives going nowhere near the NHS. That's interesting. There are more people healthier than ever before in their 80s who are walking with dogs and <laughs> loving each other and having great hobbies. And there's a huge inequality between, in your health. But the people using the NHS are generally elderly, which often means we forget the young people. So there's a real crisis in mental health, particularly amongst young people. Nick Clegg is trying to promise to do something about that. And the reason it's important is that mental health often manifests itself in young people. And if it's not sorted out, it stays with you for life. So if you don't sort out your anxiety and depression as a teenager, it may keep coming back to haunt you. Whereas at evidence, if you step in and you get the right treatment and psychological support, you can learn strategies for dealing with it. And that's probably, I mean, I now work with young people with a really unpleasant disease called chronic fatigue syndrome. And the reason I love it is I get 90-minute consultations. It's in a specialist unit, so I've gone from 10 minutes where you can do nothing to 90 minutes where you can generally sort them out, listen to them, acknowledge their concerns, and actually hand over responsibility to them for sorting themselves out. Because that's the issue, that chronic disease takes up 70% of the NHS budget. It's chronic, so you live with it for life. Some people have three or four or five of these diseases, but you only see people in the NHS for a tiny fraction of your time. So you're living with that disease, and that's the issue where we need to solve the NHS, is getting people either preventing them getting these diseases or learning to treat them themselves. And the most inspiring thing about the kids with chronic fatigue is they generally treat themselves and they get better. 
it's the, what you said about seeing somebody for a tiny fraction of time is interesting because presumably if you've got four or five uh, chronic conditions, mm. you're going to see a lot of people each for a tiny bit yeah, of time. And yeah. one pledge that has been made is for somebody, a, a, a single person looking yeah. after your care. That seems sensible. Yeah, that's a really good idea. And there are places like Torbay where they've done that, and they call it something slightly naff, like a care navigator. But, right. you know, if you've got lots of complex conditions, you want one go-to person to sort it out. Actually, it doesn't have to be a doctor. It could easily be um, somebody non-clinical even. But you need... The NHS has become so complex. The thing that absolutely does my head in is when Cameron keeps saying we've reduced NHS bureaucracy. What they've done is they've reduced the number of managers, but the complexity of the new organisations is absolutely staggering. And you do need someone to help navigate that care. So a GP yesterday complained to me that uh, women having terminations in her local clinic in Stroud, they've got to take their passport and a utility bill to prove that they're bona fide, resident, whatever. Now, if you've been some victim of terrible sexual abuse, rape crisis or whatever, you probably on your mind isn't going to be, can I find a passport and a utility bill? So that's one issue. Another issue is that we now have, instead of just having SHAs and PCTs, Strategic Health Authorities and Primary Care Trust, we've got loads more new organisations. So if you're trying to set up a new service in the community, it's incredibly complex. There are all sorts of legal loopholes in the new legislation you've got to jump through. The management consultants and lawyers are earning a fortune. I now have lawyers blowing the whistle to private eyes saying, we're really embarrassed about the amount of money we're earning through NHS reform because the reforms are so complex... We're just you know, having to take money left, right and centre off the NHS because nobody quite understands the legislation, how the, the clinical commissioning groups interact with the local area teams, react with NHS England, react with Public Health England, react with every, the local authority. It's incredibly complex. So for Cameron to say he's reduced bureaucracy is absolute bollocks. Well, <laughs> absolute bollocks. That, that, in fact, that, almost as much as we're not privatising the NHS, that absolutely does my head in. The, the bureaucracy in the NHS is staggeringly complex now, mm. and a lot of it is unnecessary. It's complex reform that people don't understand, and the McKinsey's of this world and the lawyers are making a fortune. But it's not necessarily their fault, because people don't know what to do with it. They don't understand it. So, mm. what... what <laughs> get a dog! Get a dog! And I am naturally an optimist, to be honest. You may be all negative now, but actually I'm an optimist. Remember, despite the failings of the NHS, we are living longer year on year. And in a sense, you can say the NHS is being punished for its success. It's not just healthcare that makes you live longer. It's love and support and clean air and having a job. All those things matter. But actually, let's not beat ourselves up too much. You know, we've evolved to survive and human beings are pretty good survival animals. Uh, So I think we will survive. Uh, But yeah, I think a dog is crucial to it. Phil Hammond, thank you very much. Phil Hammond there. That's all from the election special of Page 94. We hope you have enjoyed it. If there is a government in two weeks, we will be back reporting on it. If not, we will be back reporting on that too. Hope you've enjoyed this episode. Thank you very much for listening and goodbye.